All right, hello and welcome to the Super Team Podcast. After a long time, uh, we finally uh, have uh, a guest on our show. We're very excited to host uh, Raul Pal, who is the co-founder of uh, Real Vision. But more interestingly, he quit a pretty plush job at um, Goldman Sachs when he was running a hedge fund to move to Spain and start just writing content for some of the biggest institutional investors around the world before starting Real Vision. And has educated both retail investors and institutional investors on macro, crypto, kind of called the crypto macro crossover earlier than most people I know. And we're very excited to have you, Raul. Welcome. Fantastic to be here. Thank you. Raul, can I just say, Akshay is really downplaying how excited, like for the for weeks leading up to this, he's been telling me, oh my God, I can't believe, like I, I, like he he's a big one of, he's a big consumer of Real Vision, all right? He gets a lot of his stuff. I've seen a lot of links that he keeps sending. So he's very, very excited. I, on the other hand, have do not understand macro at all. I don't understand this world at all. So today's going to be a diverse of Akshay, who's super into macro stuff and me who has no idea. So I'm excited for this interview. Well, I hope I don't let you down. I'll try my best. Uh, just so you know, the, I'm the batch of 2019, Raul, from Real Vision, where, you know, when the bond market broke, uh, the front end of the bond market broke in uh, September 2019, it was like they'd start doing not QE, QE. So I'm actually very grateful to Real Vision and your team for helping me understand why that's even important to my life. Now it's like the entire world is watching like seven white men trying to figure out <laughs> you know, what the interest rates are going to be because my portfolio is going to be impacted by this. So we, I also know where you're launching in India, so I'm excited to talk about that in a bit. But maybe we can start off with uh, sort of your background and how you got into uh, uh, finance, especially the part where you quit a job that like uh, your mother and father would typically approve of uh, to do things that they would definitely not approve of. That's right. So just a bit of context. I'm actually, my father's Indian, so I'm half Indian, half Dutch. I've even lived, I lived in Calcutta for a while when I was a kid. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry about that. It's a very hot, humid place and very crowded. Yeah. Yeah, I was in finance for 32 years. So Goldman Sachs, where I started and ran the hedge fund sales business and equities and equity derivatives, where I was learning, watching the grandmasters of macro investing, the Paul Tudor Joneses, the Stan Druckenmillers, the George Soroses. I'd speak to them almost every day because I was the guy in Europe that they all speak to. So it was an extraordinary period where over the Asian financial crisis, when Asia fell apart, I was at the epicenter of everything. So everything going on and how these legends traded, it was it was extraordinary. It's like being taught acting by Robert De Niro. Didn't make me a good actor, but at least I could see why they were good actors. Then I decided to try my hand at running money myself. So I went to GLG Partners, which was the largest hedge fund firm in Europe at the time, and started and ran the Global Macro Hedge Fund there. So Global Macro, for those of people who don't understand, I'm talking to you, Tanmay, <laughs> is um, is investing across all asset classes based around the economic cycle. So is the is the economy going up or down, depending which country you're looking at? And what's the best way of expressing that view in markets? Is it bonds? Is it currencies? Is it equities? Um, is it crypto? Whatever it may be. So macro is this amazing 3D global jigsaw puzzle that you can never solve or you do for short periods of time and then it becomes super complicated and you can't see it again. You have to start all over again. So I did that and then I decided I'd had enough running money for other people and getting yelled at by your investors and the stress of never sleeping at night. And I was like, 
fuck this, I'm going to Spain. And I went to go to the Mediterranean coast of Spain. Their quality of life is something very important to me. It's a beautiful place to live. And I started realizing that I'd had a lot more experience than most people in the industry. And I should start sharing it with people. So I started writing Global Macro Investor. And Global Macro Investor was aimed at the world's biggest hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, institutions, pension funds, that kind of stuff. I still write that 18 and a half years later. Um, still, you know, it's a I've been very lucky. It's very world-renowned, kind of prestigious service. That was the epicenter of everything that came after that. Because over that time, when I was in Spain writing Global Macro Investor, we had the global financial crisis, 2008, which I was lucky enough to see coming. And I became quite well known for that. So a lot of the people in the film, the big shorts, were clients of mine. Ah, really? Okay. I've seen that. I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Um, and then after that was the European crisis in 2012, when we almost lost the entire banking system of Europe and the government bond market. Again, I was lucky enough to foresee that too. But what really upset me was people came up to me in the street and said, why didn't we know? Hmm. I'm like, this does not feel good. Hmm. Why do some of us have all the access to the information and others get none? And so I thought I'd do something about it. At the same time also, I realized that after Lehman Brothers had gone under and nobody knew who owned anything in the financial system because there's like all of this leverage. So everybody has a claim on the same asset. It's like, oh, we don't own anything. And then Cyprus came along and the banks, the banking system shut down and they took everybody's deposits to pay the shareholders of the banks. And I'm like, this is not good. We don't actually own money. So I went around the world trying to start the world's safest bank to do something about it. And that's a pretty hubristic thing to do. I was, you know, yeah, I'm just going to go and start a bank. Um, But somebody tapped me on the shoulder in 2012 and said, you should take a look at Bitcoin. Mm. And I saw it immediately as this interesting asset that was kind of like digital gold, but also the blockchain could be the recorded ownership of all of the assets of the financial system. And so I wrote the first ever macroeconomic strategy paper on Bitcoin in 2013 and invested then at $200. I then started Real Vision in 2014 to give, to democratize access to the very best financial knowledge. Those are the twin journeys. And my thesis always was macro and crypto were going to meet because the only answer to macroeconomic stress is printing money and printing money actually drives down the purchasing power of a currency of course because you've got too much of it so if you've got too much of it, it's worth less so the comparative value of assets goes up and i knew that cryptocurrency particularly bitcoin was going to do very well in that environment and that proved out to be the case back in 2020 they say you know Raul, they say that you know bitcoin is like this is the meme right bitcoin is your hedge to inflation because you know every time they print money but bitcoin is there's just going to be 21 million bitcoins ever and but the but the crypto market is so heavily correlated to the public markets that it kind of doesn't really serve that purpose anymore which is it almost feels like every time there is qe bitcoin goes up because it's so is, isn't it like correlated to inflation, but in, not, in like, not in like a hedged way? Okay, let me explain it for your Indian audience. Why do Indians buy gold? So when you look at gold in rupee terms, hmm. it's gone up. 
What has the rupee done over the last 20 years? Gone down. Why? Because of inflation and central bank policy and those kind of things. Indians buy gold because it maintains their purchasing power over time. And it's worked astonishingly well. It's the same with crypto. What you're hedging here is not inflation, i.e. prices rising, which is usually demand or supply driven. What you're hedging is the debasement of currency where your purchasing power goes down. So, okay, let's go back one step. What is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is a scarce digital asset and we either choose to accept it or not, right? Like everything, like gold is, it's just a metal, but the meme says we should accept it as something of value. So Bitcoin is a meme that is the digital store of value, but it is also a technology. So if we think of Ethereum now and the rest of the crypto space, this is a new tech of which we can use blockchain for a whole bunch of different things. So what we've got is the scarce asset and technology. Okay, great. That's worth something. The other side of the equation is, as you mentioned before, these however many white dudes, aging white dudes in the United States set the monetary policy for the world, essentially. That liquidity washes in and out of markets. So when it washes out of markets, as it is right now, they're raising interest rates and they're reducing the balance sheet that's taking money out of the system. So it's a game of musical chairs. So what happens is people are scrambling for dollars and um, both, you know, you see currencies falling around the world, but also people can afford less assets because there's less leverage, less money around. So the price of Bitcoin, NASDAQ, everything falls. I mean, literally everything, house prices. And the dollar goes up because there's less dollars around. That's what's happening right now. That's happening right now. So if we go back to 2020, what happened was massive liquidity coming in plus debasement of currencies, quantitative easing. Right now, we've got the opposite of debasing of currencies. We've got quantitative tightening. So the currency is actually getting stronger. So the asset should go down versus that. But back then, we had like a 50% increase in the Fed balance sheet. We've never seen that much monetary expansion in the modern history of the United States. And so what happens is you then look at all of the assets and what did best out of that was Bitcoin or all of crypto. Why? Because not only so gold did okay and equities did well, but Bitcoin did really well because you had both the technology bet and the monetary bet. And so it so outperforms. So if we're in an age when the central banks are straddled, the global economies are straddled with debt, and this doesn't apply to India as much as it applies to um, the Western developed nations, is their only answer is to print money, to avoid catastrophe, because who pays the debt? So the central banks backstop it. So over time, they're going to keep doing this trick because it's magic trick because it makes asset prices go up and everyone looks like they're rich. But you're not rich because you actually can't afford a house because it keeps going up in value because your wages don't go up. And the asset you need to own for all of that is crypto because it's it's the thing that outperforms and gives you more purchasing power. It's adds to inflation because it's it's actually you're better off owning Bitcoin than your own currency. That's how that's how it's a it's a hedge. Yes, but it's not inflation as in the rising cost of gasoline prices. It's to do with fixed asset inflation, houses stock market, Rolex watches, art, all of that stuff that's supposed to hold value, 
That goes up a lot when you debase the currency. All of these things with variable amounts, like your wages, don't go up, which is why the rich get richer because they own all the stuff and the poor get poorer because they just get income and income never goes up as much. Raul, one of the counterintuitive things that has happened as a result of this, uh, uh, of QE or, you know, more broadly, whether it's fiscal stimulus or monetary stimulus, is uh, people concluding that you will end up in a world where the dollar goes to zero and it has done the exact opposite and it's like at a 20, 30 year, year high. Uh, you've been one of the folks along with Brent Johnson who have sort of talked about this in the past. Can you explain to folks listening why people like even, you know, uh, people like Jack Dorsey got this wrong where they, um, you know, where they thought there was gonna be hyperinflation. First thing, let's get this public. I taught everything Brent Johnson knows. <laughs> so I've taught him everything. <laughs> We're going to just so, cut this and paste it on Twitter every day until Brent just finally gives up and deletes his Twitter. Okay. The US is 25% of world GDP. It is 87%. The US dollar is 87% of every trade transaction in the world. And it's also the most indebted nation in the history of the world. It's 100% of world GDP in debt. But not only that, everybody else is in debt in dollars. So when things get scary, you go to the safest asset, which is the dollar. But there's always a scarcity of dollars because the US is only 25%. So it can't ever generate enough dollars for the system until it massively prints dollars and then gives them out to people. So the dollar is always in short supply globally. And in recessions, it's an extreme short supply. So right now, because the Fed are taking dollars out of the system, the dollar is going up a lot. So over time, this dollar shortage just keeps playing out. Everybody uses the dollars because they have to, because 87% of trade is in dollars. So you've kind of got a gun to your head. You need to use dollars. So when India buys oil from Mexico, let's say, whoever you buy it from, or from Saudi, you pay dollars. That's neither of your base currencies, but you have to go and buy dollars in the open market to do that. Well, it's not your currency. It's not, it's not the Saudi's currency. Yeah, sure. Saudi's pegged to the dollar because they have to be because oil's price in dollars. So this is the issue is everything is in the dollar and nobody has it. And the US is in control of it, which is why those bunch of baby boomers based in Washington, control the world. So is it fair to assume it's like a marathon where like when they flag off, that's when they start printing and everybody sprints as fast as they can to the other end of the risk curve. And then, you know, if there's like a freeze sign, everybody freezes and retreats into like the, like uh, maybe it starts raining and it's everybody retreats to shelter and that shelter is dollar and everyone's waiting for the rain to stop again so that the checkered flag can go off. Sounds like an insane uh, game that millennials are forced to participate in just to be able to buy a house. Uh, it's sort of like two clicks away from, um, you know, some sort of unsupervised gambling. And don't forget for millennials to buy a house just means they have to take on more and more leverage, much more leverage than their parents took. So it becomes a riskier and riskier bet at all times. Now that means that the central banks are aware of that, so they try not to let things go wrong. So what do they do? Print more money, which makes the house prices go up even more, so people have to use more leverage. 
I mean, what a mess. But that's the mess we're in. And you can either blow up the entire system and destroy everybody and all wealth, or you can try and do this and hope that over time that the purchasing power of money erodes the debt. That's yet to be proven out. The US did that in the 1940s after World War II. They kind of had negative real rates, so interest rates less than inflation for an extended period of time, so the debt burden went down. But we don't, we haven't done that very well so far. I mean, debt to GDP keeps rising. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices, or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again, March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. Maybe we can do one more question on macro, Raul. I wanted to I, I want to ask you about inflation versus deflation, but maybe we can do it in the following way. If you had to map out uh, scenarios of how this could pay, play out, and if we were to think about this probabilistically, what are the two or three ways that this could play out, um, or depending on what the central banks do or don't do uh, over the next like three to five years? So there's two schools of thought. The current strongest narrative, which is not the view I share, is that in a world that is deglobalizing, like we're taking Russia out of the world, we're trying to remove China out of the world. There's not enough, so and also a world that's moving towards um, uh, moving away from fossil fuels. We don't have enough investment in mining fossil fuels, that kind of stuff, and therefore any demand in you know in the upcycle means that prices rise and we get inflation. Also, the fact that people like the US have to, or the Europeans have to build factories in their own countries, i.e. onshoring, means that wages rise in those countries. And therefore, people are suggesting that prices are going to be stickier for longer. So they're saying the big narrative is, well, inflation's probably going to be about 4%, and therefore interest rates about 4% for another five, six, whatever years, and we've gone to a new regime. My argument is the regime looks confusing because we had the pandemic, we shut down the world, we reopened the world, there wasn't enough supply, so prices rose massively, and we're seeing the recession that that has caused. Interest rates went up, prices went up, everyone's like, oh my God, I've got no money. And the downside of that, I believe, is deflation. And I think deflation is a structurally larger force. Why? Because in the Western world, the population is aging. It's completely the opposite of India. So the West, India average age is 28. The United States is 58. And Europe is older. So we have the, a record number of retirees. Now, if you've ever seen your parents retire, one thing they end up doing is not spend as much money. Why is that? It's just human psychology. You don't know how long you're going to live for and you've got a fixed amount of money left. So the first thing you say is, oh shit, I need to stop spending because I don't want to be 85 and homeless. 
right? So it's a really strong thing. So spending collapses. And so the economy tends to be deflationary. But then there's another mega power, which is globalization. Even though we're in globalization retreat, you know, don't forget places like India become the net beneficiary here. If China's not the great counterparty, then India is more neutral in the middle and is a more trusted counterparty with the rule of law, etc. So globalization continues, but maybe more regional. Okay. But then there's the really big super, super trend, and that's technology. Basically, everything that gets digitized goes to zero in value. I mean, everything. So cloud computing, computing power, computing chips. I mean, you name it, televisions, mobile phones, everything goes to zero. So it's, it's an incredibly deflationary force. And that's only about to accelerate because we've now got green energy, which is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and that's going to accelerate. We've got artificial intelligence, which is replacing humans, robotics, replacing humans, biotech sciences, We've got Internet of Things. We've got so many. We've got space. We've got so many massive technologies all going exponential in their adoption all at the same time. That's a very, very, very deflationary force. So I think deflation is the more likely outcome. And to give you a historical comparison, we've only shut really shut down the world a few times in the past. The last one was obviously World War II. So World War II, we, the whole world was shut. Everybody was out of the labor force and in the you know, state sector or in military or creating, working on bombs and planes and that stuff. So what happens after World War II, 1946, everybody comes into the labor force looking for a job. Everybody wants to spend some money because they've been out in the military. Nobody's in the factories yet. So, there's, so we get this massive supply demand issue, which is very similar to post-pandemic. And what happens is, CPI in the United States goes up to 20%. The Federal Reserve raised interest. Well, it wasn't the, yeah, the Federal Reserve raised rates. And then what happens is we went straight to deflation 18 months later. Then we have a rebound and then we settle in this period of interest rates were about 3%. Uh, sorry, inflation was about 3% and interest rates were about 2%. And we did that for 20 years, a massive fiscal stimulus. Okay. So you, predict that we're going to basic they're going to keep raising rates or keep it stable until like uh, demand collapses we're going to get some deflationary forces and they're going to be forced to reduce rates and or ease again and it's back to party time it's back to party time but because we're still kind of still swinging that pendulum after the pandemic we'll probably have a rebound as the economy recovers and inflation still it's not going to entirely disappear so rates might rise again but then we really see the bad side of this whole demographic technology thing. So, you know, I'm very bullish on risk assets over the next 10, 15 years. I think it'll be very positive soon. Then it'll get a little bit, again, volatile. And unless something changes geopolitically, um, I think we're probably setting up for a new renaissance golden age because of what's happening with technology. Should I buy a house or no, guys? <laughs> like now yeah you need to your game is to buy ahead of all the 28 year olds when they get to 32 34 ah. and they want to buy a hat right india's very different okay right you've got 
You've got to go back and look what happened in the United States in the 1970s. That's where India is. And what happened was you actually got quite a lot of inflation because everybody left home, got a job at the same time, bought a house, bought a car, bought their first suit, bought their first table, chairs, everything, right? That purchasing power is enormous. All of the young Indian population are going to go through this and you might get significant inflation for a period of time. It depends whether you can eat, offset it with technology and other stuff. It's structurally a different economy than the US was in the 70s. But yeah, my advice is Indian property is expensive. It's going to get more expensive because all of you need to buy a house. Oh my God. Akshay, Akshay, you've been telling me not to buy a house for so long. You wrecked me. <laughs> you liar. All right, I'm going to make this. Well, well, uh, how are you going to get the choice? How are Indian house prices going to fall? Well, I think I think I don't think they fall. I think that it's just cheaper to rent and use that opportunity cost <laughs> to invest in assets that are more yeah, I don't, friendly I, to millennials versus buying bags of retiring boomers in ETFs or real estate, right? I don't disagree with that. I mean, if you think about it as well, this same group of 28-year-olds is is becoming financialized. One of the reasons we set up Real Vision India, right? And they're not going to buy boring assets. I mean, India the stock market has been an extraordinary good asset and that'll continue because of the demographics and the low debt and all of that stuff and the technological kind of revolution going on in India still won't outperform crypto. Hmm. So, and that opportunity cost is high, like especially in places like Bombay where Tanmay used to live until a few months ago. It's like as expensive as New York. Oh yeah. Isn't that insane? insane. It's madness. You know, Gagawan, even Bangalore is not cheap, you know. Raul, when yeah. when when you first started openly speaking about crypto, did your peers like give you a funny look, like, "Hey, what are you talking about?" No. Interesting enough, my peers were like, "Okay, this is interesting," because macro people are curious by mm. nature. They want to know what this is. Is this an opportunity for me? And I explained mm. to people, "Listen, I said, I've done the maths here badly because I'm not." I'm not a statistician. In fact, I failed all my stats classes. But if I look at the gold above ground supply and the known reserves and apply that to Bitcoin, so it's called a stock to flow. I said, I think Bitcoin's worth a million dollars with gold at 1300 at the time. I, was, I then also said, oh, and I'm also an idiot, so I'll discount myself by 90%. So let's assume 100 grand is fair value. And... It was $200. So I'm like, this is the best reward any of us are ever going to see in our entire careers. And everyone got it. But that's my global macro investor audience. These are sophisticated investors. So cut to the first video on Real Vision when we mentioned Bitcoin. And it's like, it's a scam. It's ridiculous. You need to own gold. Remember, gold was at $1,300 back in 2012. And where is gold today? Just double checking. Gold today is $1,600. Bitcoin was at 200 <laughs> and now Bitcoin today is at 20000 <laughs> But, oh God, on, on Real Vision, we got such pushback. You know, this is ridiculous. How dare you? But the macro guys, no, they, they, they kind of got and it. How, how do the macro guys feel about it? Were your employees okay with it? Employees, well, it was split. You know, there's a bunch of people who just didn't like it. And over time, you know, I've been, as you know, very strong on this. And over time, people have left Real Vision because they didn't share that vision. But, you know, I think it proved pretty well that macro and crypto are all different facets of the same thing. They're all, one is the future of money and the future of the financial system, and maybe the future of all business models. 
and the other one is the decaying system. And that kind of pessimism, optimism actually works really well. It gives you lots of opportunity sets. I mean, you long the pessimism, which is the US dollar when everything is bad, and then you long optimism, which is like Bitcoin when everything is, uh, when the flags go off again, right? And Yeah, but don't forget, like the, the flags go off when everything, the... but the flags go off when everything's really bad. So that's yeah. why all the macro people are watching the bond markets fall apart, the economy, and everyone's slightly cheering because we know what comes next. Yeah. Uh, well, the UK has already started easing, yeah? Well, uh, well, they're doing some temporary intervention or whatever the latest thing they're calling it is, but they're... Temporary intervention. <laughs> Do you think we end up in a world where um, one, like everybody else around the world is easing because they're getting margin called against their dollar debt, but the US is not? And that is sufficient for Bitcoin to resume its... Uh, yeah, so trajectory. Bitcoin, the largest driver of Bitcoin in the cycle. So there's... So if you think about that technology, that gives it this exponential uptrend. So if you put a logarithmic chart, it's actually pretty smooth. What are the cycles driven by? It's driven by liquidity. The biggest driver of Bitcoin is global liquidity, not just the Fed liquidity. So if you use the global bank balance sheets year on year, what you find is that's the thing. So China's already starting to print. The UK is starting to change. I think Europe will be pretty soon. So I think that all we need is a turn. The rate of change needs to turn and crypto turns, which is why, you know, ETH bottomed in June. It's been looking forwards saying the cycle's turning. And I think it's right. Um, so I think the cycle's turning um, and it takes a while to play out. So people would call this crypto spring. You know, spring is a time where, you know, it rains a lot, it's cloudy a bit, sunny a bit, it's cold, it's warm. And that's exactly what the crypto market's like right now. It's just messy, but it's not really going down either. So it doesn't get colder every day. That's winter. So I think we're in crypto spring and as liquidity changes, and I think that happens relatively soon because things are getting pretty ugly out there. So Raul, if you're wrong about your technology thesis, right, uh, there's sort of a reasonable case to be made uh, that a lot of the exuberance of uh, venture capital was a direct result of low interest rates and lack of yield and all these pension funds had to meet like these six, seven percent uh, hurdle rates. And so they just sort of like memed a new industry into being that was fast-paced tech. And so you had a lot of people like Peter Thiel, et cetera, criticizing the fact that we're in an era of stagnation and there hasn't been a lot of innovation outside of just the world of software, which uh, I can see why that that would be true. And so until regulations change, you actually won't have the sort of secular deflation across the world. Um, so if for that reason you were, uh, you were wrong, would you still think that crypto is the right asset class in a world where inflation goes up and you're welcome to comment on the first part as well, by the way, on whether that, how you think about that. The first part is the adoption of technology is relentless. It does not stop. It's not driven by the capital markets. The capital markets mean more entrepreneurs take a shot. Nobody gives a shit if the hurdle rate's 6%. Look at the hurdle rate in India. Inter look where Indian interest rates are. Where are they today? 7.5%. So 7.5% rates... And how many entrepreneurs have you got? The entrepreneurs in India are going exponential. So it's a nonsense narrative that raising interest rates means that nobody does technology. Go back to the 70s. There was plenty of technology companies like Xerox that took over that period of time. So I don't believe that. I think the adoption of technology is exponential. Again, if you look at, if people want to understand what I'm talking about, look at India 
Look at what happened after Aadhaar, India Stack, UPI, and then the, ex the Cambrian explosion that happened there. It's astonishing. I'm so happy you said that. You know, I tell my friends who visited, like my friends from abroad, when they come here and they look at India Stack, right? This is India Stack, which is Aadhaar, UPI, everything together. It, it's, it's, I, as an Indian, feel pained when I have to travel abroad and use payments everywhere else. And you got 1.2 billion people into it in two years. This has never been done before. That's the speed of technological adoption. So let's go to crypto. Crypto right now is the fastest adoption of any technology the world has ever seen. It's twice the adoption speed of the internet. Sorry, do you mean by the by number of holders? Increase in number of holders um, per year is faster than users of the internet um, in terms of growth from the first 5 million users. That's where I took it from. So crypto is still growing. This year will be a, a much flatter year, but it was growing at an average at about 160% a year and the internet was growing about 80% a year. It's twice the speed. So we have never seen a technological adoption as fast as this. And so does interest rates stop that? No. Change in interest rates is the thing that stops it. That liquidity, remember, it's year-on-year -year rate of change. If they just stopped interest rates, if the US stopped interest rates here, over a while, the rate of change goes flat. Assets can do fine in that because, remember, it's technology adoption that actually drives the price over the longer run. So it's the rate of change that's causing it. If the rate of change goes to zero and it flattens out, i.e. interest rates stay sticky, then the chances are that we just get the trend rate of adoption of the technology over time, which still gives it a 100% a year rise. Got it. So even if we were to end up in like higher interest rate environments and maybe there's, you get some inflation, uh, it's still sort of the an interesting asset class to be in. I, I can agree with that. I think. Yeah, what you a, don't want, what you don't want is interest rates to go from three and a half percent to 10% because that will that will not be a good investment then. <laughs> It'll be a very bad investment. But if they stay up three and a half percent, four percent for a long period of time, it's fine. If someone wants to start a career in finance, uh, what would you what would you tell them? So the average age of an Indian is 28 years old. Every single one of you is going to be investing. So the industry is going to boom. Now, India is also a leader in fintech. So you probably don't want to work for ICIC Bank or somebody like that because it's boring. But entrepreneurship and fintech, crypto, okay, this is where India excels. And everybody is going to invest. That's just, that's the only thing you need to know. The answer to every career is going to a secular bull market. Whatever it is, be in that. Do not go in like the fossil fuels industry. That's a secular bear market. The price might go up, but it's going to shrink over time. Go where the money's flowing. So when you've got a group of 28-year-olds of the size of the Indian population that all want to aspire to that vision of the future sales, to be wealthier than their parents and to have a house and do all of that stuff, they're all highly incentivized to invest. So that industry is a phenomenally good industry to get into over time. Asset management, fintech, all of that. Crypto. Working crypto, guys. Will Real Vision India help with any of this? 
Yeah, I mean, the reason I started Real Vision India, apart from being half Indian, is that there are so many young people who need education. And the quality of the YouTube stuff is pretty crappy. Um, that's Thanks, okay. <laughs> well, not yours, obviously. But of course. Yours is amazing. Um, oh. <laughs> Two clicks from CNBC. <laughs> but, I mean, look at CNBC India. I mean, look at the, the TV channels. They're shockingly bad. So what we need to do is educate people, as you guys are doing, on what is the real opportunity here and how to navigate it and give them the tools. So that's the idea of Real Vision India, is over time we'll build a community and then we'll give the community the tools that they need so they can all learn how to become better investors. And if we can do that, we can change a lot of lives at scale. And that's that's really what Real Vision's all been about, democratizing the financial information. And Indians will kind of cut off from that and we want to make sure that they get it. They get the same knowledge base. So a couple of questions. A, what is it priced at? And B, uh, a lot of Indian young Indians just want to outsource the decision of investing to like an expert. So why would they go and uh, sign up for this? What is the case for them to learn about uh, this? So Real Vision India, there's a number of things to know. Firstly, Indians get a discount. So they go to realvision.com. It'll find your IP address and give you Indian pricing. I don't know what it is, but it's very inexpensive, even in rupee terms. Uh, so it's particularly price in rupees. But that's actually not what we're doing. What what we don't want to do is just give you the content that's on Real Vision because, yes, it's useful to learn macro investing and what are the big factors influencing, but we want to create community and content for Indians as well. So what we're starting is a community from the ground up. Um, so we've just started with our first Real Vision India meetup, getting people together. We're starting with a Discord channel um, and we're starting to develop a show which will be a YouTube show, which will be an East meets West between um, Nippon, who's based in in uh, Gagaon, and then we have Anthony, who's based in Texas. It's kind of hilarious. But Indians are always kind of quite interested in Americans, particularly Texas. Uh -huh. Yeah, Gurgaon and Texas basically are basically the same. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Same. And, it, and so I think it's going to work well. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's going to work well, and it's going to be – um, and that will be the genesis of where we're going to go with this thing. So that will be free because a lot of Indians don't want to pay for it. Once they really want the education, we've got stuff like the Royal Vision Academy, which is is like world-class trading education. But let's first give people the tools. Let's get them engaged like you guys are doing. Start educating people, and then we can give them even more tools to succeed. This next, So this is the life and career section. So we got the career part. Raul, you're you you've retired, but you still you, you're like you're like a workaholic. Like what what what's that like? What is your relationship with with work? So my relationship has always been, I think of the world as accumulating lifestyle. Quality of life is the game. It's not money. That's why I lived in Spain in the Mediterranean coast. That's why I live in the Caribbean next to the sea. It's quality of life. It's not about money. So what you're trying to do is bank quality of life. And that's different for different people. You know, so it could be a cabin in the woods for somebody else, or it could be a, you know, a private island for somebody else. It doesn't matter, but it's that quality of life that, that I do. Now, I also semi-retired. And what I learned was that without intellectual stimulation, I went awry. I discovered, 
you know, living in a beach town in Spain is probably not the healthiest thing to do because it's just a 24-hour day party. And I realized that intellectual stimulation was what I liked the most. And so that's when I started to, I made that decision and I looked at a number of different opportunities that I wanted to do and I chose Real Vision, which was a stupidly hard thing to do. And we're, we're still there, but so that's, that was all consuming and really hard. Global Macro Investor was what paid my bills. And that was the epicenter, the genesis of everything that I did, because that group of people were the seed investors to Real Vision. But then once I saw very clearly what was going on with crypto, I wanted to bet, make the biggest bet of my life. That's with my time and energy into this one thing. So I knew that okay, Real Vision was moving more towards Web3. Global Macro Investor, I write about it. I still write macro, obviously. But I want to make two big bets. Going back to this story of how young Indians should think about finance, I just took the same thing, is what is the secular trend here? One is all the institutional investors, all the rich families, everybody's going to come into crypto. Right now, it's too difficult for them to do. They don't want to go and you know, figure out wallets or custody and all of that. What they really, and it's becoming more complicated. It's not just a Bitcoin world anymore. It's a complicated technology world. And we're all feeling a bit dumber every day as this space gets smarter and smarter. So I thought, how do I solve this? And I thought, what we'll do is we'll create an asset management company that invests in the world's best digital asset hedge funds. So let the hedge funds focus on what they do, which is finding the best opportunities in the space. We'll build a broad basket so now big investors can come in. And that's the start of the asset management business. So that's one bet. Everybody in finance is going to invest in this space. What's the other bet? The other bet is, oh, everybody's going to be using blockchain technology. It's going to change the world. And it's going to be a consumer application of massive scale. Because if I extrapolate the trend rate of growth, we get to about 4 billion people in the next five years. So this is going to be another Cambrian explosion so what are those use cases? So I, I had a thesis that culture is becoming the new asset class. So this is culture and community. That's And where those are strongest are music, sports, film, TV, book franchises, and fashion. Now, there's probably religion and politics. We'll leave those two out. But those four apply to somebody in India, somebody in South Korea, somebody in Brazil, somebody in the United States. And they are at a gigantic scale. So I think they're going to be tokenized using both a, a combination of NFTs and social tokens. And if I think the next billion people come into that and the next trillion dollars comes into the finance bucket to fund all of this, well, I want to capture both of those. So this is the biggest bet I've ever seen. It's the most intellectually rewarding thing I've ever done. It's a whole load of fun. So I'm now working stupidly 14 hours a day, like seven days a week, but I've got a grin on my face and endless energy from doing it because these times are magic. They happen once or twice in your entire life when opportunity is everywhere. It's not easy. It never is easy. Opportunities everywhere. You've seen it and you go for it. Do you find the adoption of crypto inevitable because the states have to pass on it? It's inevitable because we as humans want it. We as humans understand some of the fragilities of the system. You know, humans 
two strongest emotions of fear and greed. Crypto works for both of them. Fear is, I want to keep my money. I don't want it taken away and I don't want it debased and I don't trust you. And greed is, hey, this is a perfect behavioral economics incentive system where if we all participate in the network, the value of the network goes up. So this is a very powerful force. Imagine if Facebook, when it started, so Facebook works by giving you a bunch of free tools, monetizes your attention span, and the shareholders get rich, and you kind of get abused, but you get the free tools. So it's a trade-off. Imagine if Facebook had given every single user free shares. You would have told everybody about it and would be passionate about it. That's all crypto is. Do you think Real Vision will launch its own token someday? Oh, yeah, we're working on it now. Okay, our there we go. NFT, our NFT, which is up, I just worked out this morning, 600% in the last month. We've got a Genesis NFT, which is starting, which is what we're building out our whole Web3 business. We've got another NFTs coming this year, which is going to create a community around um, fantasy trading, of which that's going to seed another group, which is going to be tokenized asset management, where we get the the the, the the hive mind, the crowd, to start creating asset allocations. And so then we, because they're smart people, we want to do that. But the Real Vision token's coming as well. Um, so it's all part of this Web3 explosion at Real Vision that's happening right now. Sorry, the, the glint in your eye is blinding me. <laughs> I'll tell you what it looks like, because I've got it on my screensaver, and most people don't know about it. It actually says the super community of finance built on the super platform of finance. So what we're doing at core is finance is a bunch of disparate communities. India wasn't part of the Americans or Europeans, wasn't part of the South Asians. Well, we want to bring both geographic people together, but also crypto, macro, single stock investors, precious metals investors. We want investment advisors, asset managers, students, we want all of the communities of finance and we'll overserve them like we're doing with India. We're going to, they can use the existing content because it applies for them because real vision goes across everybody, but we'll create new experiences for all of these communities to super serve these communities. And to do that, we're busy building out a super platform of finance. Does that mean the real vision app will go from being a content delivery app to a community management app? And it just looks different in like, community management and experiences. So there's going to be charting, pricing, portfolio tools, the ability to execute, education, note-taking, artificial intelligence that takes all the information from the network and gives it back to you in insights. Um, it, there's going to be, uh, yeah, a lot of different features coming that get rolled out over time that I want you to live your financial life entirely on Real Vision. Because right now we're spread across 20 bloody apps. And it's crazy. The disparate communities stuff. I'm not going to take a, away from Twitter. We all use Twitter. But we might as well double click on your Real Vision desktop app and your Twitter opens up as part of it. And maybe you can curate Twitter so you only see stuff from Real Vision members. Well, that's going to be a better curated list than the crap we have to deal with every day on Twitter. So there's a lot we can do to curate experiences and make it one click, you're into your financial world, all your notes are there, your portfolio's there, crypto, macro, the analysis is there, everything. Research, the lot. Cool. And what would people do with the token? 
token will be your a basic reward system so if you're a good community member if you're publishing research you're publishing trade ideas you are doing great community actions you'll get rewarded both by the community and by real vision itself and that will be the system of currency of which you can spend so it should be a true utility token something more akin to how ftx use a token which is is the way of navigating the ecosystem you accumulate more tokens you'll be able to cash them in you know membership reward you style stake them, accounts. you get different uh, tiers of rewards for staking different amounts okay cool very exciting when does it happen is that announced yet no we're still working on it you know we're still building out social graph stuff like that but it should happen maybe by the end of the first half next year very cool and all the folks who are uh who sign up in india etc will get to be in some way a part of this i assume exactly you know uh, we need to figure out all the legalities of doing it but we'll probably first use a i'm probably giving away secrets here we probably first use we've been using things like po apps for events so proof of attendance protocol so we start building a social graph rewarding people for community behavior we'll have a system like reddit did first you get some points i think we've been using coconuts we've been testing because it's the Cayman Islands, coconut points. But eventually, that will convert probably to some sort of airdrop version of a token. But again, it's, we need to, we've got a lot of legal work to get to. I've got a personal question for you, Raul. It's very personal, so hopefully uh, it's okay. Uh, what do you have in your alcohol cabinet? Oh, Jesus, I've got a very big alcohol <laughs> cabinet. Um, okay. Of all the, from all the partying in Spain, <laughs> I had to know what you, what you collected in your portfolio. In my portfolio of alcohol in the cabinet, I mean, I literally have everything. But the ones that I will frequently go around is rum, obviously, because mm. I live okay. in the Caribbean. Um, so there's a fair amount of rum, although me and rum don't get on as well as I used mm. to. We used to love each other, but now I don't like the rum as much as it likes me. Are the um, hangovers bad? Really bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I've got everything from... Hold on. From, have you had old monk rum in India? Of course I have. Oh, of course. Oh, all right. Of there course. we go. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what is the what is the what is the rum uh how how do, how do you uh what are the best rums like how does one drink rum so there's two real types of rums there are so first is aging right same with whiskies so the kind of five to seven year old that's the stuff you can mix with anything so like you'd have you know with coke or with soda or with ginger or whatever um and, you know, in that kind of bracket, stuff like uh, Havana Club or Florida Canyon from Nicaragua, great stuff. Then you start getting to the fancy rums. Um, like Indians are kind of mad about Scotch whiskey. You know, here in the Caribbean, we're mad about rum. And so every one of these small islands has their own rum. And some of them have really special rums. So Florida Canyon is my kind of go-to high quality rum 12 year old Fort florida candy is like you can drink it neat you can drink it mixed it's like perfect but then after that you go to stuff like clement from um martinique the french rums they're called rum agricoles they're really interesting or you might go to the dark rums like zacapa which are like really rich and heavy and sweet there's a whole different experience of rums and then you can go to the, there's a Colombian rum called Dictador. And that was kind of in receivership for many years. And so a friend of mine bought it and in, and the bank had a hold on their warehouse. And in their warehouse was 50 years of rum. 
because they weren't allowed to sell it. So it's got the oldest rum collection in the world. And Real Vision got sent. We made some videos for Dictador Rum, and he sent us several cases of 1980 wow. Dictador. Wow. Okay. And it's <laughs> unbelievably good. And he's got rum going back to the 60s, I think. Um, and that's So Dictador's great as well. So there you go. There's my rum story. And where, where does Old Monk rank in this? Old Monk is... I have fond memories of Old Monk. Um, <laughs> From yesterday? <laughs> no. I have not. I mean, I have it every time I go to mm. India. Yeah. It's it's quite sweet. It is sweet. Yeah, but Indians we, love sweet yeah, stuff, yeah. right? So it, it's it's a it's a bit sweet, yeah. um, but you know you can't go wrong. It just reminds me of yeah. India. <laughs> so who do you get along with now? Is are you more like a Scotch or a? No, I'm. You know, spirits wise, if I'm if I'm feeling fancy, I want a couple of drinks before dinner, aperitivos. I actually like Campari. Or if you're going for a Negroni, something like that. I also like pastis. A lot of people hate pastis. I love it. So whether it's um, Greek ouzo or Lebanese raki or French perno or ricard. So I, I like that as well. Um, if I'm drinking spirits, it's gin tonic or vodka soda, stuff like that. But really, I drink a lot of champagne and white wine and red wine. Um, if you find you're drinking at 3 a.m., what, what would it be? If I'm drinking at 3 a.m., I'm making mistakes. So I'll be drinking rum, and then I'll okay. be broken right. the next day. Cool. Got it. <laughs> well, you've got to find a way to make this a part of the Real Vision experience. Um, well, did you not see my video yeah, on YouTube? Like... <laughs> I did that video on YouTube last Friday. Everyone should watch it, actually. It's hilarious. I just drunk my way through it. I had, everything behind me was all bottles and stuff. And I, I drunk and did the whole thing on my own with no producers or anybody else. Well, you, I'm, I'm just saying uh, there's there's probably some interesting ways uh, or interesting utilities to the token that's about to launch, you know. So. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and if you've shot a podcast uh, with Raul on like 10th of October, let's say a random date, right? You automatically get invited to um, the Cayman <laughs> Islands to try the dictator 1980 right like, exactly. i'm just giving you an example like, yeah, for example yeah yeah uh any trips uh, to india planned no annoyingly uh i need to go soon maybe i think it's my mum's 80th and she wants to go to see my cousins in delhi so maybe november next year if not yeah i'm always looking for an excuse to go to india it's just a long way from the cayman islands when i was living in london or spain it's actually not that difficult you know it's a nine hour flight but from here, it's a bloody long way. What's interesting, we've got a huge Indian community here. So even the hospital here is a Shetty hospital. Ah. And they have world-class doses there because they're all South Indians. <laughs> of course. And so you can go there on a Saturday, on a Sunday morning, get dosa for breakfast. Oh, right? that's amazing. <laughs> all right. Maybe wow. when, we, really just... when we go to Miami next year, actually, maybe we can give the Caymans a visit. Yeah, it's an hour. You should come down. It's beautiful. Where we got the this interview it's completely is, uh, worth it now. We have achieved the, 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 <laughs> we've achieved in yeah. the seventieth yeah. minute our entire the whole point of this <laughs> row was for you to get invited. To eat dosa, you're both invited. You're both invited. You must come down. And you should come down to Delhi. We'll show you a great time, and I'm sure like Real Vision India has like an incredibly bright future ahead of it. I think a lot of young Indians would really benefit from learning how these seven aging white dudes affect their financial lives and futures. Uh, as I found out in 2019 to much shock and all, and I still can't believe that um, a website where, you know, you invite 
hedge fund managers and all these folks uh, and talk about this stuff is something that is relevant to me, somebody who's not in finance and has nothing to do with any of this, uh, because guess what? I guess uh, millennials were dealt with a hand that requires them to learn this stuff. So um, appreciate all that you do, Rao, and your team does. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's an important thing and hopefully we can help people. Sounds good. Do go check it out. We're going to link everything in the description, Rahul. Thank you so much for, for taking time out. Uh, this was an absolute pleasure. I feel like my brain got a little bigger from just trying to keep up, trying to keep up with you. And I taught you about you rum. Did. Most you did, most importantly. Yes. Uh, hopefully we get to do this again. And if we're ever in the Cayman, we'll come say hi. Thank you, Rahul. Lovely. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, guys.